Corinthians chapter 2 is what we want to look at. Three areas in Paul's discourse that I think will serve our edification if we can work it through. The demonstration of the spirit is the term that he uses in verse 4, which um, I want us to analyze and look at and think through carefully. Because it it becomes his argument for why he doesn't do certain things and why he does. So I'm going to read chapter 2, verse 1 through 4. And, and, and then we're going to open in a word of prayer. We're going to come back and land on verse four. <clears throat> and maybe we can get through points two, two and three this evening. If not, we'll pick it up on Friday. Almost sure that will be the case. The apostle says in verse one, and I, brethren, when I came to you, came not with excellency of speech or of wisdom, declaring unto you the testimony of God. For I determined not to know anything among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. And my speech and my preaching was not with enticing words of man's wisdom, but in demonstration of the spirit and of power. So he's arguing for what he did not do. And what he did do, and then he's going to define what he did do as simply being an agent of a particular kind of work of the third person. And then he also gives what is called a purpose clause in verse five. I'll just share that and then we'll come back. I didn't do what others do. And I did do what I was gifted and called and compelled to do. And I did it with one objective in view, that your faith should not stand in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. That's the way Paul is opening up his argument in chapter two. Remember, he's the pastor and spiritual father of the church at Corinth. So this is a big deal to him. We've already dealt with his argument in chapter one around mending nets and uh, warning about divisions in the church and schisms, etc. Now he's going to explain the difference between him and these other party spirits that were allowed into the church, that were allowed to entrench themselves and embed themselves, even to the point where portions of the church took on their identity instead of the identity of Christ. And what he wants the church to know is the difference between the way he operates and the way they operate. And this will be a pattern and analogy for us too. We'll get a chance to probe ourselves a bit and ask the question, can we know substantially the difference between a false prophet and false teacher um, with a true prophet and a true teacher? Can we, can we know it? Can we identify it? Can we uh, define it? Can we um, expose it? if, if one can know what the truth is, then one can also know what falsehood is. But one has to really know the truth well in order to know the falsehood certainly and clearly. I would say that Christians often don't know the truth well enough to be able to understand the uh, counterfeit systems that prevail. 
We find ourselves in the community of faith today, often seeing Christians who are vacillating between these two kinds of camps. They might know true ministry, but they are often tinkering with and engaged in and fondly embracing false ministry with false claims and false manifestations. And, and that's common in our day. So Paul is saying to the church as a father, here is who I am. Here is what I did not do. Here's what I'm doing. Here's the grounds upon which I'm doing. And the purpose of it is that your faith might stand on something much more substantial than the wisdom of men, which was a big issue in Corinth at that time. I'm of Apollos. I'm of Cephas. I am of, of Barnabas. I am of Paul. I am of Socrates. I am of Plato. I am of Aristotle. I am of Philo. I am of this one and that one. That, that was big for them. And, and the Christian had to have a different kind of message. He had to be of Christ. That set you starkly in a different and an antithetical way to your culture. So, Father, thank you for an opportunity for us to study your word. Thank you for those that are coming. Thank you for the truth once for all uh, delivered to the saints. Help us to contend for it, as Jude told us, and help us to give you undivided attention now as we labor in your word. Grant us the opening of our eyes and the understanding of our hearts and the inclination of our will towards you and your purpose and your design and your glory as we look into this portion of scripture. Um, again, give us the ability to pay attention to him. We're asking your mercies upon our families and loved ones who are um, in any kind of way duressed or troubled or struggling or lost or whatever it is. Would you grant us the joy of you looking upon them in the person of Christ and having favor on them. And if you are pleased to use us to that end, help us to be ready to be used by you to help them as well. We come to you on the ground of your son's blood, our cleansing, purging, sanctification, and washing. We come to you on the grounds of his righteousness, our standing, irrevocable, immutable, unchangeable Christ in us and us in Christ. And we and you and you and us, for all eternity. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right. The portion of scripture I want us to begin to dive into is going to be verse four. A very serious proposition on the part of Paul that's going to require us to just labor a bit and maybe even seriously. And I don't plan on doing anything but kind of unpacking the table around this idea, not necessarily drawing any other conclusion, but it would be good for us to be able to know what Paul meant in verse four. If you'll pull verse four back up when he said in first Corinthians two, four, and my speech and my preaching was not with enticing words of man's wisdom. So that's what I meant by what he openly said he was not doing. And this is this again in the first century that was remarkable because a man's whole life really in the realm of Athens and uh, and Greece was predicated upon, particularly if he was a communicator, a speaker, was how well he could speak. 
And that's true today. You and I talked about this on Friday. You and I can be hoodwinked by people who are gifted with words, talented in their speech, who know how to turn phrases. I've watched that forever in politics. I've watched politicians transform themselves into rhetoricians who had slogans and who had phrases and terms that they knew how to employ to get people to hear them. Politics is filled with that kind of thing and they would use that jargon over and over again and it would be a methodology really of not uh, clarity or of illumination or of um, an expansion of your consciousness. It would really be a ploy to close your mind. Right. So there is that kind of communication that actually illuminates and broadens your capacity to comprehend things more clearly and more broadly. And then there's that kind of communication that's designed to create a what is called focus trap. You see this in politics and you see it in religion, where in religion they use little phrases over and 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 over again and get you all hyped up and then locked up and then pinned up. Um, and, and what Paul was saying was he used none of those tricks. He's none of those methods. I told you also last week when he says in my preach, my speech and my preaching was not with enticing words. What I said was he didn't use words that would make him superior to you. That's what the idea of enticing means. Hupereko, uh, the idea means to have speech and language that would be so intellectually um, out of reach that the people didn't know it, but because they didn't know it, they presumed Paul knew it or whoever else knew it, and they felt like he's a smart fella. He's able to use big words that I don't even understand, and I'm just going to listen to him because, man, it sounds good. Now, this is Ezekiel 33 where God warned Ezekiel that the people had reduced him, the prophet, down to a person who could sing well and play well on an instrument. And that's always a danger in any kind of, um, any kind of communication context, where if you have people listening to you frequently and you recognize that you have a way with them, it's always a danger in your being able to dominate them with words rather than serving them with explanation, serving them with clarification, serving them with exposition. There's a difference, you know what I mean? And, and maybe you guys already know it and appreciate the difference between being tyrannically controlled by a dynamic of rhetoric that basically threatens you to simply acquiesce to it or else you feel like an outsider. Does that make some sense? Um, and, and, and over against that would be a kind of experience where when the communicator is speaking, what he or she is trying to do is simply explain things and put them out there for you to deal with. And it's never a bargain to get you to pledge allegiance. Does that make some sense? Right. There's a big difference between the preaching that is trying to get you to pledge allegiance and the preaching that is simply setting forth the proposition as clearly and broadly and as proximally as close as they can to you so you can reach out and get it for yourself. Where your own volition, where your own decision, where your own determination is playing the clear and cognitive and personal role in taking it in. I'm doing this because it makes sense to me. 
not because he's persuading me or he's dominating me or controlling me with all of the fanfare of what we have in the paraphernalia of preaching. You know what I'm talking about. Um, and so when Paul says this, he's saying, I am not seeking to entice you. That's a beautiful way to put it. I don't want to bring you into captivity. I don't want to captivate you. I love that phrase. Now, here's what he's saying so we can go, no, he's not doing that. He doesn't want to do that. What he wants to do, according to verse four, is but in demonstration of the spirit and power. And so this is where we're going to work, because what Paul is aiming to do is to demonstrate. This is why I'm using the word demonstration. He's dem he's he's demonstrating that all he is is a vehicle. That's all he is. Who is Paul and who who is Apollos, but servants by whom the Lord uses to bring about salvation. That's chapter uh, three as well. He's a vehicle for demonstration of what the spirit. Right. So now what I want us to do is just really be thinking about that, because I've thought about it for many, many years. What do we mean by demonstration? of the spirit, right? And power. So demonstration of the spirit and power. You have it in your outline. It's called the demonstration to exhibit, not to what? Control. The demonstration to exhibit, not to control. That's powerful because what Paul is about to explain is that all he did was what God called him to do and God did the rest. So there was this real idea that more than the subject, object, teacher, student dynamic was taking place. There was a third entity present working in a way in which that third entity could show up demonstrably proving that he is present and proving that he is who he said he is. So that's what we want to talk about. Y'all kind of got that? So who is that third entity? The spirit. Exactly. This is not new language for the Christian. This is not new language for the Christian. But I would say that this is very difficult language and this is very dangerous language. Would you agree? When we're talking about the spirit of the living God, got to be very careful. Got to be got to be humble enough to know that if someone were to ask you to really define what ruah means in the Hebrew, you wouldn't be able to define it. You might be able to declare synonyms and parallels, but you wouldn't be able to define it. If someone were to ask you to define pneuma or pneuma in the Greek, both of those languages are used with old Greek and new Greek, pneuma, pneuma. And, and you, you get the same kind of what we call analogous definition in the Old Testament and the new, the wind. The wind. That's not an explanation. Because we go, then what is the wind? Are you following? Which which means if the predominant analogous definition of the spirit is simply an analogy of the wind. What all of us are saying is we really don't know what he is at its minute uh, ontological level. See what I'm getting at? There's a lot of humility that has to remain there when you talk about the spirit. Is the spirit uh, a material being or non-material being? Is the spirit 
um, uh, physical or is the spirit non-physical? You got to be really slow when you answer these because there are volumes of, of books around this subject matter. Okay, I, I, I think one of the things that we're doing right now is recognizing the category of existence that you and I don't frequent in except by faith through grace and that in a very narrow and particular way. Did that make some sense? Right. We don't frequent in it like we don't frequent hanging out with angels. We know they exist. We know their distinction between us and them is categorically. We are prominently but not exclusively uh, carnal physical beings and they are non carnal beings. But I wouldn't say that they aren't physical in some categorical sense because they have to have material essence, do they not? After all. They grabbed Lot and his two daughters by the hands and dragged them out of the city of Sodom. After all, they sat and ate with Abraham in the plains of Mamre right down the road, if you understand what I'm getting at. So what, what the scriptures allow you and I to do is humbly declare what scripture says. And try to be careful when we enter into our assumptions and our assertions beyond what scripture says. Does that make some sense? All right. So when we talk about demonstration, I shared this term with you here before. The idea of demonstration is a term that simply means to prove the claims of a thing for what it says it is. So when we talk about demonstration, what we are talking about is proof of the spirit and power. That's the way you would want to use that. It's a legal term that means that when you say the spirit was there, you have to now bring all of the tangible, viable, certifiable evidence that indeed he was there. What is your witness? What is your evidence? What is your proof that the spirit was there? This is a legal term. Does that make some sense? This is a very legal term. So I'm going to start with a few verses because I want to just take the time to prove the distinction between a servant of God and a servant of Satan in relationship to lying and telling the truth. If there is no third person, if there is no spirit of the living God, if there is um, <clears throat> no ruah, uh, pneuma, uh, that is coextensive with the father and the son, then there's no reality for you and I concerning the transcended Christ. In other words, Christ's transcendent nature, the fact that he is the eternal son of the living God, cannot be verified by you and me with our natural faculties. Did that make some sense? Like you and I have not the apparatus of our of our physical limitations to be able to prove that Jesus is who he said he is. So now I'm bringing into uh, the conversation actually one of the grounds of proof of the existence of the Holy Spirit. One of the grounds of proof of the existence of the Holy Spirit is his ability to make Christ a reality to us. So I'm, I'm helping you here. I want you to just kind of massage it because I'm going to take you through a lot of verses around demonstration of the spirit. Here's what I want for the saints at grace to be able to do. I want you to be able to say, I can tell you the proof of the presence of the Holy Spirit. Whenever the Holy Spirit is present, these things are obvious. Did that make some sense? Right. You want to be able to do that. Because it's a courtroom scenario. The world doesn't believe in God. The world doesn't believe Jesus is Lord. 
the extremely hyper carnal secular naturalist doesn't believe in anything other than what it can see with its naked eye. It, they actually believe that any time that you and I go beyond the empirical data into dimensions that are non-empirical, that we are engaging in pure, absolute, irrational fantasy. Right? I don't want to go too down, too far down the rabbit trail, but what I am trying to do is open your mind up to two areas. One is, as a Christian, you don't get off the hook easy by saying you know God and you have the spirit and you can't at least demonstrate those tokens and evidences of the reality of the spirit and his reality in your life. Does that make some sense? Because you're making an outrageous claim when you say, I have the spirit of the living God. Because we didn't see folks who said they had the spirit of the living God. Okay, so I'm, we got work to do with representing him correctly. Because he has been misrepresented a lot. This is why the church goes to these extremes. Calvin talked about these loose spirits that fly all over the place. And so did Luther. He called them loose spirits flying all over the place, hither and yon, because they were so moved by the Holy Ghost. And never grounded anywhere at any time in any such way as to actually give demonstration and proof of his existence. Which is what Paul is here doing. This study is powerful. So I can tell since I only got about 35 minutes, this is the only point we're going to unpack. And all I'm really going to do is kind of take you to some verses so that we can start assimilating the argument for his presence. Can we do that? All right. So here's going to be the first uh, approach to this subject matter. Um, in, uh, in our verse, Paul says this. I need to actually start here. Because the way in which Paul is doing ministry, he would assert is one of the tokens of uh, validity and qualification to be a servant of the spirit of God. And, that, and, and here's the way he puts it in verse one. And I, brethren, when I came to you, I did not come to you in excellency of speech or of wisdom. That's one of them. <clears throat> Right. So if you're an agent of the spirit of the living God, the spirit of the living God does not need you to be some kind of sophist. You don't need to be his PR man at the level of manipulating people with rhetoric. That's one. Secondly, he says, um, declaring unto you the testimony of God. That's two. This is really interesting. Here's what Paul is saying. Now, all I did was give you a testimony of God. I just told you what God did. That's all I did. I came to you telling you what God did. He's now reducing his methodology to a simple message. Did that come home? Because that's the term testimony, mature. All I'm doing is giving you the testimony of God, which means he's simply taking what God gave him and he's giving it to other people. This is what I meant by sharing stories. God has his own story. We have our story when God calls us by his grace. He brings the two stories together so that we can share stories as we tell men and women about God. Right. So, you know how Paul did it over and over and over again. He says, I met him as a great light that knocked me down on the Damascus road and confirmed who he was and confirmed who I was and called me into the ministry. He said it over and over. This is called your testimony. So that's where he starts right there. I love the way he puts this. He says, all I did was declare unto you the testimony of God. I didn't do a bunch of hocus pocus. I didn't lay out a whole bunch of, you know, theses and arguments to spellbind you. And then he says this. 
over in verse uh, two. And I was determined to know nothing among you except the subject matter of Jesus Christ and him crucified. Now, expand it out. As you and I know, the subject of Jesus and him crucified is a subject beyond for which time would not afford us to even begin to unpack what that means in its essence. Right. And then finally, here are the other words that I think are beautiful. He says, I was with you in weakness. See that? I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. I love this because this is what he's saying. I didn't bring bravado. I didn't bring false confidence or arrogance. I didn't bring a kind of stature of being that would have had you focused in on me which is so easy for us to do. In fact, what he said was, I'm coming to you with all of the markers that would have been contrary to anyone who's trying to impress anybody. Did that make some sense? Like, like I'm coming to you. I mean, if we could use PJ's, you know, vernacular, man, I'm coming to you jacked up. I'm really coming to you way. And I told you Acts chapter 18 lays it out. He was literally in fear. He was literally in trembling. He was literally in doubt and God had to tell him, Paul, don't fear. I got a bunch of people in this place. Now, here's also a wonderful father figure paradigm here. Paul is simply saying to them, I didn't come to you with any kind of sense of um, of uh, self promotion. I didn't come to you with that. All of my qualities would be demoting qualities, qualities that would not work. That's a beautiful thing. Because once again, he's trying to help them point to what we want to talk about now. So when we talk about the demonstration uh, to exhibit and not to crow, con uh, control, he's talking about simply being used by God to allow God to actually manifest himself in demonstrable ways by which it could only be understood that that's God doing that. OK, now that's a big term that I'm putting out here. That's a big term, but here's where it starts for you and me. It's Acts chapter 2, verse 24, uh, verse 22. We're going to walk through several verses in the book of Acts, and I'm going to lay out for you what are called the legal testimony of the Spirit as an evidence of his presence in the life of Paul's ministry. This is Acts 2, 22. You men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man, what? Approved of God. So Peter is using the same term here about Jesus, that when Jesus walked for three and a half years doing ministry, Jesus was simply walking in company with God while God was working through him. Does that make some sense? And what what the text is saying is that that work that God was doing in and through Jesus was an evidence that God was with Jesus. And if you can remember, this is what Jesus says in John chapter 14. If you don't believe me, believe me for the work's sake. Remember that? Right. Jesus wasn't even so insecure in his personhood that he worried about whether or not people believed him. That's huge. That's huge when you can be a servant of God and you don't care what people think about you. The only thing you really care about is what people think about God. That's beautiful. Notice what he says. And he was approved of God among you. And I want you to catch this because here is where the beginning of the demonstrable work of the spirit of God shows up. Here it is. And he was a man approved of God among you by miracles and wonders and signs. Do you see it? We're getting ready to get into that by miracles and wonders and signs, which God did by him 
in the midst of you as ye yourselves also know. I could stop there and use that text to assert the definition of the demonstration of the spirit. Think about what Peter said. Now, God's using Peter. He gave him the keys. He's going to be the one opening the door to the to the Jews. Right. Because it's Pentecost here. And what Peter says is, hey, y'all know that God was with Jesus. He did miracles. He did signs. Right. He did wonders with Jesus as you yourself saw. And you know this. This is not an argument. Got it. Right. So that's that's the way Peter is talking. Now, what is Peter doing? Peter is actually explaining what just happened at Pentecost in chapter two, verse three. Look at verse three and four of chapter two. And there appeared unto them, these who were in the upper room, 120. You guys remember them, that little uh, band of believers. And there appeared unto them cloven tongues like as a fire and it sat upon each of them. You guys see that? That was a one-time event, never, ever done again. That's, this here is what we call a manifestation of the Spirit, not a demonstration. It's a manifestation. Okay? The cloven tongues of fire would just be fire on the top of their head. Y'all got that? It appeared as fire, not real fire. This is spiritual. This is proceeding from and a co-extension of the presence of the third person. OK, it's important for you to capture that. And there appeared unto them cloven tongues as a fire. And it set upon what each one of them. So there was an individual um, experience of the whole upper room community, 120 of them. Some argue that they were outside of the upper room by now. That's fine. Where they experienced a personal residence of the spirit of God symbolically as cloven tongues of fire on their head. Did you, did you get that? All right. Look at the next verse because this will help. And they were all filled with the what? And began to speak with other tongues. So now we have the first mention in the book of Acts of the presence of the Holy Spirit. That's the first mention. And in that mention, there is a demonstration, a manifestation and a demonstration of how he would begin to be known that he was present among the people. OK, because this pattern is going to repeat itself over and over again, not the pattern of the tongues of fire the pattern of the presence of the spirit. Okay. So this is the first one and notice what it says. And they began to speak with other tongues as the spirit gave them utterance. All right. We're not getting into the definition and terminology and complexity and arguments of that language. It's other languages in chapter one, because we, we know what chapter one says about it, but what will be occurring now is that if you and I move over into uh, Acts chapter two, around verse uh, 14, uh, notice what it says, Acts chapter 2, 14. But Peter, standing up with the eleven, lifted up his voice and said unto them, You men of Judea and all ye that dwell at Jerusalem, be this known unto you and hearken to my words. What is Peter about to do? Explain the presence. Because you guys know that from verse 4 all the way through, 17 nations had come and visibly saw this manifestation of these 120 speaking in the different languages of those people groups. It's literally the Greek term dialectos. And they were amazed that these Galileans knew how to speak 17 languages of Jewish people that were Hellenized in different areas. Y'all got that? That's called a demonstration of the Spirit of God. Now what is Peter doing? He's going to explain it. 
Now, this is going to be helpful to us because we're arguing for what it means to understand the demonstration of the spirit. Peter is about to help us with that. Notice what Peter does. Verse 15. Peter says, for these are not drunken, as you suppose, seeing it is but the third hour of the day. He's he's overcoming some of them who were mocking the uh, the extravagance or the unusual unusual anomaly of what was happening. 120 people speaking in all of these different languages and they were writing that off. If I took time to parenthetical, put a parenthetical here, this is what you and I do when we are not clear on what we are seeing and we want to make sure that we don't lose our sense of sensibility and rationale. We explain a thing away. Did that make some sense? We're, and, and there's nothing wrong with that. That's just human. What we're trying to do is go, I'm not sure what this means, but it's rattling me too much for me to yield to it ignorantly. So let me explain it away. People do it all the time. It's okay. And then here's what Paul Peter does. Keep moving, please. But this is that which is spoken by the prophet. What? So now Peter is going to use the Bible to explain what's happening. This is what I'm talking about. So now if it's your job or mine to explain what it means to know the spirit of God, what it means to be able to say, I have the spirit. You got to be able to use your Bible to explain that. You can't just use your irrational, emotional, subjective, you know, thinking. No one has to buy your testimony. But what Peter is actually doing is explaining the fact that what's happening is the fulfillment of prophecy, right? And so he goes back to, to the book of Joel, uh, chapter 2 and 3. I'm not going to go there. I'm just going to keep reading because he's going to quote it. And it shall come to pass in the last day, said God, I will pour out of my spirit upon all flesh. And your sons and your daughters shall do what? And your young men shall do what? And your old men shall what? All right, so now these, these would be extrapolations or further evidences of the presence and demonstration of the Spirit. Where the Spirit of God is residing among the people of God, what you are going to find among the people of God is that they are brought into levels of revelation and insight of God by which now God can use them to communicate to others about who God is and about who Christ is. The phrasing there that you can pull out of this text is simply, I will pour my spirit upon all flesh. That's not literally all human beings. So understand that everybody doesn't have the spirit of God. What he meant by all flesh was every kind of ethnic group. Okay. Every kind of ethnic group and your sons and your daughters show what? Right. So the third person is going to help you open your mouth and speak the wonderful works of God. That's going to that's going to require another predication. And that is to say, you're going to have to know your Bible. And if you know your Bible and you have the third person, then the third person can help you share your Bible with people. All right. So the reason why it's beginning at Jerusalem is because all these people have been catechized in Torah for some fifteen hundred years. Does that make sense? This is why you this is why you raise your kids. In the fear and the nurture of the Lord, because at any time the spirit of God wants to actually bring them into the maturity that's in Christ, the word is already there. Did that make some sense? Because that's what's happening here. They are all children that don't know God in a deep spiritual paternal sense. Once the Holy Spirit is poured out upon them, they enter into what Paul is going to call maturity. OK, they're going to be able to communicate with God 
uh, lingua franca, lingua franca, God talking to them, them talking to God because they actually know God's word. So this is what Peter is, is stating. They will um, have they will dream dreams. They will prophesy. They will see visions and they will dream dreams. I want to continue moving now to kind of just show you how it will build upon itself. Look over at verse 37 and verse 37 of Acts chapter two. This is what it said. Now, now, when they heard this, they were what pricked in their hearts. So here's another category I want you to capture. One of the other categories of the demonstration of the spirit when he is present in the community community of the people of God, he can prove himself present by pricking men's hearts. Only God can convict the heart. This is important to know. Only God can do that. Men can grieve you, but God can convict you. Does that make some sense? Right. So understand what's going on here. The sphere of the conscious, the sphere of the heart, the realm of reason that God gave you as a human being is his domain. The, the realm of the mind, the realm of the heart, the reason, the 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 capacity to try to rationale and understand things, your volition, your inclination to either agree or reject it. All of those are apparatuses of our uh, internal essence. Is that is that so? The spirit of God has the ability to invade that space and engage you in your arguments against him and against his word and convince you that you're wrong. And that would be a beautiful thing, wouldn't it? Right. Because, again, if we go back to the normalcy bias and if I don't know God and, and, and God is drawing near to me in this event and I'm becoming unrattled because this is just unknown to me. I'm just in what is called survival mode. This is nothing but my limbic system keep kicking in and I'm trying to ration. I'm trying to hold on. And God is saying, no, 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 don't hold on. I'll catch you. But I'm going to let you know you're a sinner. Did that make some sense? Right. I'm going to let you because see, you need to know you're a sinner, because if you're not a sinner, then you can't be saved. You got to understand that. And, and men don't believe they're sinners until God shows them that they're really sinners. So this is what I love about what's going on here. After Peter explains that these are not drunken men, but what's happening is a fulfillment of scripture. Now they are being drawn in by that very same spirit to come under conviction about the implications of what this means. He's about to explain it. Here's what he says. Now, when they were pricked at the heart, they said unto Peter and the rest of the apostles, men and brethren, what shall we what? Right. They're hemmed up, aren't they? We would call this arrested. Arrested. <laughs> They're hemmed up. They, there's no way out. <laughs> you know, you've seen the criminal. You, you, you've watched those programs where they try to get away. And then they just get hemmed in, right? And they just... Raise your hand. That's what the Holy Ghost has to do to you when you're running from God. This is why we call him sovereign. He has to arrest you. Does that make some sense? So this is what's happening to these men. This is why uh, Jesus said, stay here at Jerusalem. No, at Jerusalem is where this thing going to be begin at. It's going to begin in our home with those knucklehead people that killed me. We're starting with them. They're coming under judgment. And I'm going to save some of them.
This is a demonstration of the spirit and power taking place. Many more verses, but I, I want to walk you through this because I want you to figure out how to explain it for yourself. Because you have to be able to do it. Because Peter now can explain it. Peter now can explain it. Yeah. And watch this. Peter says, repent. That is, change the way you're thinking about Jesus. And be baptized, every one of you, in the name or the authority of Christ for the remission of sins. And you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit as well. See that? Capitulate to the Lordship of Christ and the spirit of the living God is yours. He's telling them to bow the knee, is he not? He's telling them to bow the knee. And it, may I ask you, is Peter being used by the spirit to tell them to bow the knee to the spirit? Right. So you can see how the spirit is working objectively in the 120 bearing record to these thousands of Jews that are there. And now the spirit of God is honing in on several of them who have been arrested by the spirit in this phenomena. And Peter is now shutting them up to Christ. See what he's doing? Peter is shutting them up to Christ. We could expand then this demonstration to cooperation with God in order that when you preach the gospel, the gospel might have effect in a person's life. Did that make some sense? Right. So this the work of the spirit of God can be prerequisite to salvation. In other words, you can wait on God to put people in a position where when you share the word with them, they bow the knee. I want you to think about that because you and I are not manipulating God. We're not controlling him. Remember, I told you true servants don't control God. God controls them. And true servants don't control the circumstances. They God controls the circumstances. That's one. Let's keep going. I still got about 15 minutes. This will work itself through. Look at verse 41. Here's another evidence. I want you to get it. Some of these evidences will carry over to you and me in our present generation. Some of them won't. Then they that gladly did what? Were what? Ah, I love it. I want you to capture it. Then they that gladly received his word. I would argue that one of the proofs and presence of the spirit of God is not only bringing men and women to conviction, but granting them the capacity to receive God's word. We actually know that's a work of the spirit. Like what you're going to learn in first Corinthians chapter two, verse 14 is the natural man cannot receive the things of God. So the spirit of God has to do something by way of transforming your mind and repositioning your heart and opening you up to God in order for you to receive him. Paralambano means to bring him in, to welcome him in. You have to be changed for that to happen. That's a beautiful thing. It's a beautiful thing. When all your life you have been teaching your kids and training your kids and talking to your kids and they're not saved. And then one day it happens. Most beautiful thing on the planet. Most beautiful thing on the planet is when your child comes to know Christ. And then you go, it was worth it to actually be teaching them, talking to them, praying for them, witnessing to them, bringing them up in church with them hollering and screaming and not wanting to do it. It was worth it for them to come to this moment, right? God hunted them down and shut them up and said, I arrest you in the name of the Lord. This is a beautiful thing. They received his word. And one of the evidence is that one of the obvious, these are called now the protocols of salvation. We could talk about what is called um, the, the salutist order, the order of salvation. We could talk about that. The order of salvation is that men must hear the gospel. That gospel must break their heart. The spirit of God must change their life. They must have faith planted in their heart because faith is a gift of God, 
not of works, lest any man should boast. And when faith is there, it is naturally receiving Jesus. And one of the immediate acts that proceed faith is baptism. And, and, and baptism is big in the book of Acts. It's big in terms of the work of the Spirit of God. So notice right here, they received the word of God with gladness and were what? Baptized. Well, now are they being conformed to the image of Christ? Christ didn't even begin ministry without first being what? And the Holy Spirit did not come upon our master until he was what? See what I'm saying? So now we're looking at what we call conformity to Christ. That's what I told you. The role of the spirit of God is to bring Jesus to bear upon people's hearts as a reality. And when Jesus is a reality, it's more than theory now. Now we're being moved into the story. Now we're moving into the story of Jesus. Isn't it a beautiful thing? Now we're moving into the story. We're believing him, we're receiving him, and we're walking the way Jesus walked. We're moving into the story. Because Jesus is now adding bone to bone, flesh to flesh. This is my body. This is a powerful thing. That's a powerful testimony. And the same, and the same day there were added unto them about 3,000 souls. Spirit of God is demonstrating his presence and bringing to bear the reality of Jesus. Is that not so? Let's keep going. Some more stuff I want you to see. Look at verse 41. Verse 41 says, then they, and, and they continued step. All right, we're done here. For, I'm sorry. We did verse 41. Let's, um, let's go to chapter three, verse seven. We could stay there. Look at chapter three, verse seven. There's some more things I want you to see. Cause now something happens in, um, chapter three. You guys know it. This is the lame man at the gate beautiful. And Peter and John are still prominently given to worship worshiping at the temple. In fact, they just stayed in the temple as long as they could. Because remember, they learned who the true Lamb of God was. They knew that they no longer had to literally offer up Passover, new moons and feast days. Every time they went to the temple, they were showing how the things that were being done in the temple was fulfilled in Jesus. Does that make some sense? So they were going to temple simply to preach Christ through the emblems that pointed to Christ in the Old Testament. Hey, the menorah over there, that candle that's flickering over there, Jesus is the light of the world. Hey, that big old labor wherein the priests are washing, Jesus is the water, the living water that cleanses our soul. Hey, that big old altar where they're offering up those lambs and bullocks, Christ is our offering. So they'd sit there and go, you know, and, and many of them will get, we'll get it, we'll get it, we'll get it. That's verse 7. I love this because now the lame man is sitting outside and you know how the text goes. Peter looked upon him and said, silver and gold have I none, but that which I have I give unto you in the name of Jesus Christ. Rise up and what? Well, look at it. And he took him by the right hand and lifted him up and immediately his feet and ankle bones began to receive what? Now remember how God approved of Jesus. A man approved of God by miracles, by signs, and by wonders. Peter is doing the same thing now, isn't he? And John is doing the same thing. They're being vehicles for God. Is the Spirit of God present? Is he demonstrating his presence? And Peter is going to explain to you again why this event happened of the miracle, okay? He's going to explain this. Look over verse 41. I love this. Because you guys know he received strength. And Peter fasting, this is verse 4. I want verse 41. Uh, verse 41, because Peter's going to explain what happened. And, I, and I, got, I got time. I can say this. So, I'm, 
First of all, miracles don't happen every day. So don't listen to anybody saying that they do. And here's the reason why. What I mean by miracles not happening every day. Miracles are not happening every day in our presence, in our space, in our community. And the reason why is if miracles were happening every day, everywhere, every time, it wouldn't be a miracle. It would be a, it would be a normal thing. So don't buy into people that are always saying miracles here, miracles there, miracles here. Don't do that. Because now we're dishonoring God. God frequently does not do miracles in order that when he does do it, it will be an outstanding event that will open the door for God to be glorified. Did that make some sense? All right. So frequently we are like we're going to do tonight in a few minutes. We, we're praying for loved ones, aren't we? We do it for years. And no miracle happens. And then all of a sudden, boom, a miracle happens. And then we're shouting and thanking God, are we not? See? So we're waiting on a, that miracle because we believe that it happens. Right. But it doesn't always happen. And for all kinds of reasons. God is not just some cosmic genie doing miracles at our behest. We're his slaves. He's not ours. All right. So that's this is a, a very rich uh, text. Uh, I wanted you to go to verse 41 of chapter three. Chapter 341, that's two. We're going backwards, sweetie. Is there no chapter? Okay, so go to chapter uh, 3, verse 13. Okay, no, there we go. Chapter 3, verse 13. Here's what Peter says. The God of Abraham and of Isaac and Jacob, the God of our fathers, hath done what? Glorified his son. Do you see it? So here's what happened. The man was lame. They all knew him. He came to the doors of the church, but he couldn't go in because he was unclean. He had been there for years upon years upon years. This is what I meant. So God allows infirmity and weakness and sickness. He allows infirmity and weakness and sickness as an indicator that we have problems in our life. He allows it. He allows it. He allows it. that man had been there for years. Everybody knew him. You know how we do with our homeless people. Everybody knew this brother because his, his, his other brothers or his siblings or whatever dropped him off there all day long because they knew church folk give out money. <laughs> church folk give out money. That's why, that's why the homeless almost always say, God bless you when you give it to them, right? And, and it's the right thing. Don't be gullible, but don't be stingy either. Did that make some sense? And don't be gullible, but don't be stingy. Some of those guys got more money than you. So you got to make sure you can look. Say, Man, your shoes look better than mine. I ain't giving you no money. But sometimes, you know, sometimes you got it. You do it. Out, you do it when God moves you to do it. All right. This is you just do it when God moves you to do it. And so what God moved Peter and John to do was go to the temple. And this opportunity happened and boom, everybody sees it. This is, gonna, this is the only portion I want here. The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of our fathers, has done what? Glorified his son, Jesus, whom you delivered up and denied in the presence of Pilate when he was determined to let him go. What is Peter about to do? Preach the gospel again. Because the Holy Spirit has shown up, done a miracle for a man who was helpless, but this is going to launch Peter into an indictment of the Jews who killed their own Messiah. It's got to be done. It's got to be done. 
It's got to be done. A few more verses, we're done. I want to move forward and show you more of the kind of work and evidence of the uh, Spirit of God. In Acts chapter uh, 4, verse 31. Acts 4, 31. Just move through the text a bit. And this is a, the point in which Peter uh, was praying after accosted by the rulers. If you go back to verse uh, 29. Peter's praying. I want you to capture this too. This becomes another marker of the demonstration of the spirit and power. Peter's praying with the group. Now, Lord, behold, they're what? Right. So they're dealing with opposition. So I want to give you another token of the demonstration of the spirit and power when it's working in our life. Here's another token of it. I think it's going to come home to you fairly quick when we share it. And now, Lord, behold, they're threatenings. And grant unto your servants that with all boldness they may do what? That's right. So here's also what I want you to get. That one of the tokens of the demonstration of the spirit and power is that he grants us boldness to tell the truth in the face of threats. Did that make some sense? Now this is important. Because it's not by power nor by might but by my spirit. It's important to know that you cannot testify to something that is of this significance where you might lose something behind it without God's help. It's important to know that you need God to be present with you when you're testifying to God in a scenario where your life is threatened. That makes sense, doesn't it? Right. Because like we can be running off at the mouth about, you know, how much we know. And then when they put a gun to your head, or when you got it, when you're in a third world country and they're serious about hating on Jesus, we need the Holy Spirit. And, and, and remember, Peter ran from a little Jewish girl back in the day. Remember, a little Jewish girl ran Peter off. Peter is radically transformed now because he's submissive to the spirit. But notice what he's doing, because he was already he already passed the test. He already told the rulers, hey, this thing is is God. You can't stop what God is doing. And then he goes back to the group and says, hey, they're coming after us. We need what? Boldness. That's one of the evidences. One of the undeniable evidence. And now, Lord, behold, their threatenings and grant unto your servant that with all boldness, they may speak your word. Verse 30. By stretching forth your hand to do what? Ah, there it is. Demonstration and proof. By stretching forth your hand to heal and that signs and wonders. Ah, there it is again. Peter is holding to the protocol, is he not? He's holding to the protocol. He knows that's how God works. He knows the spirit has been poured out. He knows that um, that uh, 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 Joel has been fulfilled. The spirit is here. Now all he has to do is request that the spirit shows up. Signs and wonders and healings may be done by the name of your holy child, Jesus. See it? Did y'all get that? All right. Did God answer that prayer? Look at the next verse. And when they had prayed, the place was shaken where they were assembled together. Did, did y'all get that? Now, this is not running around the church, you know, being filled with the Holy Ghost and shaking the church with our physical body. You, you can do it. I'd rather God shake the place. I'm sorry. I'd rather God shake the place. Because that's what happened there. Is that important to know? Right. Remember what I was telling you about the way Paul opened up. Paul said, I didn't come to you with slick antics. 
I didn't come to you with scripts. I didn't come to you with methodologies and smoke and mirrors and to create a show in the flesh so that you can call me some great man of God. I told you he was different. He was different. He was willing to let God show up. And that's so important because either God's going to show up or he's not going to show up. We don't muster him up. Okay, it's very, in, in, the, in, the, in the very critical sense of objectively waiting for God to do something in our heart, you, you can't muster that up. When you and I praise God, exalt God, and we have that energy, all that's good. But that's not God coming down. That's us going up. You need to know that. Does that make sense? All right, very much so. And they were all filled with the Holy Ghost, and they spake the word of God with what? Right. I think that's what we need in our day with all of the jacked up policies going on and the church is silent on things that are critically important at the moral and ethical level. We need boldness. We really do. That's one of them. A couple more. We'll be done here. Notice what it says now over in uh, chapter uh, five, verse nine. Here's a here's a demonstration of the spirit in power. We're in Acts chapter five. And you know that Ananias and Sapphira have gathered together and created their own story, right? They have a story. I told you, you can have a good story or a bad story. We all are shaping stories. This is one couple who has taken and brought their two stories together and their two stories don't jive with God's story. And Peter now is going to demonstrate the presence of the spirit by the spirit of discernment and the spirit of knowledge. Right. This is one of the two of the gifts of the spirit in first Corinthians 12. We'll get at when we get there. Notice what Peter said. Peter said unto it, how is it that you have agreed together? Who is who is she agreeing together with her husband? Now, it's important that couples agree. This is why we're having our marriage classes. We're trying to learn how to agree, but not on the wrong things. Not on the wrong thing. God won't bless you in your agreement of something that doesn't honor him. Then Peter said to her, why is it that you have agreed together to tempt the spirit of the Lord? Behold, the feet of them which have buried your husband is at the door and they shall carry you out. Verse 10. Then she fell down straightway at his feet and yielded up the ghost. And the young man came and found her dead and carried her forth, buried her by her husband. I would assert that that's a demonstration of the spirit and power. Right. Remember what I told you about the apostolic gifts. I'm almost done for today. This is why I say watch out for anybody running around talking about being an apostle. I just warn you. I warn you like God can use anybody he wants to. And he doesn't have to put a tag on you called apostle or bishop or anything. He can, but he doesn't have to. But if you're going to be an apostle like like the biblical apostles, you got to meet the sign requirements of an apostle. There are sign requirements. Otherwise, Peter and John and Paul said they're not true apostles. And one of the sign apostles authorities that the apostles had was to raise people from the dead and to kill people. Peter just did it. The spirit of God spoke through Peter and ended the life of these two people immediately. And the reason why is because Jesus is Lord of the church. And when people come into the church seeking to deceive and corrupt and destroy the church, Jesus is going to execute judgment, is he not? That's what you learn in Revelation chapter 2 and 3, the seven churches of Asia Minor. Jesus says, I will come and fight with them with the sword of my mouth, speaking concerning the false prophets in the church at Pergamos. I will fight against them with the word of my mouth. His word is a two-edged sword. It not only saves, it kills. 
This is why John warned us about a sin unto death. There is a sin unto death. I say unto you, don't, you can't pray for someone once you know that that's the case. They're out of here. And you know, the blessing that came out of this is that the church feared. Because if Ananias and Sapphira had gotten away with lying, there would have been a whole bunch of other people doing the same thing. You know how church folk do? You know how church folk is? Uh, if they can get away with it, I can get away with it, right? No, the Holy Ghost does not mean for us to do that. So uh, uh, one of the demonstrative proofs of the Spirit of God being present is his ability to smoke out people who are nefarious in their intentionality. This will happen in your life too. When God is protecting you from your naivete or your ignorance, and you don't really know what that person or that group of people are doing to take advantage of you, he will protect you in that way. He will protect you from your naivete and ignorance. Sometimes we make the mistake of getting in cahoots with unprincipled people and we don't know it and God has to deliver us from them. And I'm thankful for it. Right. They'll, if you live long enough like I have, you will have a few occasions where you go, Lord, I'm glad you just straightway busted that thing up because I was completely lost as a goose in a snowstorm. If you had not busted that up, I would have been trapped in something that would not have been good. Right. And that's because he takes care of his sheep. All right. Just a few more. Um, there would be another one more. This is this is beautiful. I'm in chapter six. Look at verse nine and ten. This one will get into the power dynamic of the presence of the spirit of God. We'll look at the rest on Friday. We'll look at the rest. Then there arose certain synagogue, which called the synagogue of the Libertines and the Cyrenians and Alexandria and them of Sicilia and Asia disputing with who? Now, Stephen is a beautiful brother. He was one of the seven deacons. And the text tells us here in verse 10. And they were not able to resist the wisdom and the spirit by which he was. That was a promise that Jesus made in Luke 21, 15. That when I go and you remain, I will give you my spirit and no one will be able to overthrow your wisdom. I will keep you from compromising the gospel. And even in the face of trouble, you'll be able to stand. That was what was going on with Stephen. He was able to continue in the cause of the gospel. That was one of the gifts. Even though they suborned men and said, we have heard him speak blasphemous words against God. Verse 12. And they stirred up the people and the elders and the scribes and came upon him and called him and brought him to the what? To the council. Look at look at the next verse. And they set up false witnesses which said this man ceases not to speak blasphemous words against this holy place and the law. He seems to be in trouble, doesn't he? Now look at the next verse. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth shall destroy this place and shall change the customs which Moses delivered. That was true. It was true. Verse 15. Now I want you to see this. I'm done here. We'll pick it up on Friday. More evidence. And all that sat in the council. See, now Stephen is sitting around, standing around a whole council and senate of the elders. But remember, that's what Jesus says. They shall bring you before the councils. They will take you up in the synagogues. You will stand before them and it will be a testimony for me. Stephen now is about to bear record to the suffering Christ, is he not? Now, I just want you to look at this text. I'm done. I want you to look at this text and I want you to think about the presence of the spirit of God 
in Stephen's life now as a proof of him being a legitimate witness for Christ. Is it obvious? Can you see it? Is it obvious? This is something that we want to think about what it means for the spirit of God to be in you and to be upon you and to be working through you at a time when you yourself become small and God becomes big. Do you see it? Just look at the language. This is it. And all they that sat in the council looking steadfastly on him. This is not Stephen is not conscious of this. This is simply being subsumed in your duty and your love and commitment to serve Christ, even in the midst of the fire. Because the council is fire. It's adversarial hostility against God and against Stephen, is it not? And Stephen may not even be conscious of how fully indwelled he is by the spirit of God. But wouldn't it be like God to so cover his servant with the anointing? That he's not even conscious of himself. That this is called full reciprocate, reciprocal fellowship with God. When you are in full reciprocal fellowship with God, you are not at all conscious of yourself. Why? I mean, what's the point? You don't matter. Remember what John the Baptist says? I must decrease and he must what? Right. So this is and, and you'll know this. You'll have fellowship with God from time to time, won't you? In the word. And in your own private devotion. And it will be so full that God will become big and you will become small. Have you experienced that? You should want, you should. You might get it in the preaching here at Grace where you get lifted up in your soul so fully that you are no longer thinking about your surroundings or yourself or how you appear or how your makeup is dripping. It does not matter. <laughs> Oh, uh, and then I can tell you, you brothers, y'all be looking kind of crazy. It does not matter what you look like. Now, you guys know what's going to happen to our brother, don't you? You know what's going to happen to him. He's getting ready to actually replicate his master, isn't he? So full of the spirit of God, the master is about to offer him up as a sacrifice of proof of the risen, reigning, ruling Lord. All right, we got more evidences to look at on Friday. We're going to take a break.